Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. Did I ever tell you my Woody Harrelson story, John? <laughs> no. Go ahead. I was presenting a show years ago on TV3 called Agenda. I do. I remember that. And Woody Harrelson was in town. And I decided he was going to be a very, very good interview on the legalization of drugs. Yeah. Because his dad is doing double life or something in an American yes. prison, never to get out. You know, the supermax ones, never yeah. to get out. His yeah. dad was a hitman. Yeah. Right? So he was appearing at the Skull Film Festival. Okay. Right? An obscure thing. Yeah. Never and knew so there was to, one. we had to follow Woody and get him in situ into... Dublin to do the interview. And there was lots of to and fro and to and fro and to and fro. But eventually I got to interview him in Stevens Green right. on the grass. And Woody, it was a lovely day. Yeah. We set the whole shot up. He eventually arrived. And we, we'd have had four or five iterations of trying to get the interview to happen. Right. Were you lying down kind of? We were lying down like, like, two, like two Romans after, yeah. after lunch, right? After a big to, split. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. So, <laughs> so I was doing my whole, you know, Quite nerdy. Well, actually, what do you think of the economics of drug taking? Blah, blah, blah. He was so stoned. <laughs> and I'd say, well, what do you think of that? And he'd go, man, that's <laughs> such an interesting question. And it was one of the great interviews I ever did. It was just lovely. That's it was fantastic. all zen. And we were talking about something that I really then and still do think that all drugs should be legalized. But yeah. I think the only way, the only way to actually control this craziness of gangs and violence and everything is to actually take away the reason why gangs get involved, which is they're illegal and they make enormous profits. Yeah. You take that away, you tax it like booze, and you know what? You're fine. But I remember saying that to Woody and he was like, <laughs> I remember he looked at me, he's kind of like, in his head, he's like, you've no idea how stoned I am. <laughs> Do you know? Do you know uh, another story about Woody Harrelson? I don't know why we're talking about him, but I don't know why. By, by the way, how are you doing? It's the podcast. It's Thursday. We'll talk economics in a second, but we're just chit chatting about other stuff. But he was. Um, 
Trump invited him. I'm back to Trump, I know. God, we just stop this Trump shit. But Trump invited him to dinner. And somebody was asking him afterwards, so how did it go? What, what was it like? And he goes, you know what? He spent the first hour talking about himself. So he had to excuse himself politely to go out and roll a big number so he can get through the second hour of Trump talking <laughs> about, at him. About himself. <laughs> yeah. About himself. Now, today we're going to talk about cities, John. What happens to cities? You know, I have many obsessions, right? Indeed. One obsession is dereliction, yeah. which I believe is basically... There's some that we can't talk about as well. St- well, there are, many, there are many obsessions we can't talk about, but it's state-sponsored vandalism. Yes. And we need to stop it. The other one is house prices, how you get them down. It's all to do with somebody taking responsibility mm. for the city. And of course, after COVID, everyone's saying... Is it the end of the city? Is it going to change? Et cetera, et cetera. So I decided this week we're going to talk to maybe one of the greatest experts worldwide on cities. Yeah. A fellow who wrote The Creative Class, very interesting book in about 2000, Creative Cities. He's talking about cities. He's a guy called Richard Florida, very brilliant American academic. I want to talk about Dublin, but I also want to talk about other Irish cities and obviously global cities. What happens after we have spent the last year inside, no offices, no commuting, yeah. working online, what does this do to our sense of the city? Let's listen to Richard Florida now. Have a listen, and we come back and chat about it. Great. Richard Florida, listen, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, as you know, you, you know Dublin, you know Ireland. The last time we, we spoke, you were actually speaking in Ireland. What do you think, I'm not talking about Ireland, but what do you think is the future of cities as a result of COVID? And then we can come back and talk about cities in this neck of the woods. So I I think big cities will be fine. You know, I've been able to use this time to go back and study the history of pandemics, something I knew nothing about. So that in general is telling me something. The fact that I've never really considered pandemics or been confronted with them in studying urbanization for more than four decades, tell me that If you look at the long arc of urbanization and city development, pandemics have never derailed that. We've become more and more urban. We've become more and more clustered. Um, You know, so I think, you know, and you look at what uh, New York has been through. Let's take London, for example, with the Blitz and the attacks. Let's take Berlin, you know, which Berlin is one of Europe's greatest cities. And, you know, it was attacked and taken over by the Nazis, you know, uh, attacked by the allies, partitioned, I mean, cut in half for decades, and yet still is one of Europe's great cities. So look, I think what, what we're likely to see, though, is, is a little bit of spreading, which might be good for a place like Dublin. And here's what I think. I think that in the past, if, if you were a hub like London or New York, Paris, mm-hmm. Tokyo, The the workforce, whether it was a knowledge worker or a manufacturing worker until quite recently with manufacturing, they had to locate in the the metropolitan area, the catchment area. And certainly, even when manufacturing moved to Asia, a lot of those knowledge workers then went to the downtown office district, the central business district. I think what COVID does and the rise of remote work for the fortunate of us is it gives us the ability to leapfrog that suburb. My dad, when 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 he wanted to go to a suburb, he was a factory worker in Newark moved like five miles away to another town in New Jersey. Yeah. Now for a knowledge workers, you know, I'll give use the UX examples. They could go to Miami. They could go to Nashville. They could go to a, a place like Bozeman, Montana or Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They could go to Austin, Texas. Uh, I could go on and on. They can go to a lovely college town or they can go to a rural area. I think what's going to happen is 
instead of people just going to the local suburb, they have more choice. And, and, and I think that choice for knowledge workers is going to be driven by amenity and of two sorts. And then we can drill down. I think there'll be younger knowledge workers, professionals who want complete urbanity. You know, you're yeah. young, you're 23, you're 25. You want lots of job opportunities. You want lots of girls and boys. You want fun and you'll go to the big city. And then for older knowledge workers who have a family, you might go to a second city. Yep. It's more affordable. You can get a bigger house. You know, schools are good. The pace of life is more family oriented. So, yeah. And I think that th there'll be some people who want more of the so-called natural, you know, if you think about the Irish context, there'll be some people who love Dublin and the city life of Dublin. And there'll be other people who might like more of the rural element of certain parts of the Irish countryside. They won't spread out across the entire Irish countryside, but there'll be lovely small towns where they can find their way of life. And so, so because this this will be joy to many, many people listening to the podcast, because lots and lots of people, Richard, as you'd imagine, were stuck in this 1990s, early 2000s rut of commuting large dormitory suburbs, not feeling really that the day is passing them by in the car or in a train or in a bus. What you're saying is, you know, COVID plus technology has changed that outlook for people. You know, and I hate to say this because so many people have struggled. And, and if you think about those essential workers who've kept us alive, working in the factories, working in the warehouse, working to deliver the struggles they've had with the virus and just to make ends meet. But I've never been happier. I mean, I needed this personal reset to get out of the rat race. And I talked to lots of people my age. I'm spending time with my two girls. You know, we have a real family life. I take them to school. I mean, I go to a little pod school. They don't go to a real school. They go to a little pod school. I take them there. We spend every night together. We have, I was traveling before, going to Ireland, going wherever. I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I have a better life. And I needed that personal reset. And I'm finding many, many other people who are saying the same thing. So, yeah, I think we can get off that treadmill. And, you know, the word urbanist used for this now, we used to call it the the live work community. Now they call it the 15 minute neighborhood yeah. where you can live, work, send your kids to school. I call it a complete community. And I think what we're going to see is instead of a dormitory neighborhood for living and a central office area for working, that's going to begin to morph. And um, for cities, tragically, I think the big thing facing cities is they're going to lose offices. There, there's no doubt about this in my mind that London and maybe Dublin and New York are going to, they're going to be less office centric and that's going to hurt. But the good thing is that office neighborhood can become an actual neighborhood that those neighborhoods yeah. were always dead and kind of boring. And then I think work both remote work, but I do think it's a funny, David, back in the day, I was asked by WeWork when they were a functional company before that guy built them um, to come in and do a consulting session with WeWork. And when I went in the office, it was amazing to me. It was beautiful and it was all this co-working and I had coffee and, and I kind of said to my wife, well, look, this is where the creative class works, just laughing, making a joke at myself. And, and uh, in, the, in the meeting, I said, why aren't you putting these WeWorks in the suburbs? And they laughed at me. They thought it was the funniest thing. But now when I no, talk to my friends who then left and now yep. have gone off, they're like, you were right. In fact, we need co-working spaces in small towns and suburbs and rural areas where these remote workers can go for a meeting to have a, you know, have a, have a, have interaction. They don't want to go, to go there every day, but they also don't want to go to the big city every day, especially if they live far away. They sure. want to go to a place. And so what I'm thinking now is this idea of the neighborhood business district, that you, you move from an era, an era of the central business district, which will still be there. I mean, Dublin will still have more offices than anywhere else in Ireland. London will still be 
an office yeah. city of the world, of course, but they'll be proportionally smaller. And you'll see more integration of working and living, not just in the home, but in these neighborhoods. And for suburbs, you know, maybe the old mall can be reconfigured. For rural areas, maybe the little town center gets a co-working space. So I think there's more of this reintegration of working and living, which is the way humans have always lived. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the picture you're painting is, is, a, is a lot more civilized than this gravitational pull of the big city, sucking in all the resources, sucking in all the people. Can I, can I ask you about housing, Richard? Housing. What do you think the yes. future of urban housing is? Well, you know, I think we don't know. I think in the pandemic, we saw people with means in the United States in particular. And I think we have to separate out the United States. I mean, people in New York left. They were scared. People in San Francisco left. And a lot of that was young people. Remember, these are big college towns. Both New York and San Francisco have a lot of college and post-college kids whose mom and dad said, come home. You know, yeah. we're too scared to leave you there. I think housing will be interesting. I, I think there's been a surge in demand for single family. I don't think that's going to stay. We're already mm. seeing in, in U.S. cities, uh, condominium and apartment in New York, demand for apartment rentals is surging. And demand for condominiums is starting to... Now, the prices have come down, which is... Good, good, good for Dublin, good for London, good for New York, good for San Francisco. But I do think one thing we'll see inside the house, if in the, in the past 20 years, we've seen this emphasis on the big kitchen, the open family room, you know, this place for yeah. the family to gather. I think there'll be more of a demand for offices in the home. So I do think the home will have two things. One, there'll be more of an emphasis on in-home exercise. I think that's a big trend. Yeah. And two, in, even more so in-home working people are going to start to put this in a separate room or a part of a room they're going to devote. And what we're seeing, even in condominium and apartments, is demand for, it's really interesting, where you see the biggest price increases in the United States, bigger apartments, like three bedrooms rather yeah. than one and two. And then if you have a little outdoor terrace, I think that people want a little outdoor space. They don't want to be trapped. So look, I, I and I think the big challenge is going to be affordable. Like, I think it's the now the 60% or 70% of essential workers. And one thing I want to add, essential workers and uh, racially minority workers and ethnic minority workers have been hit hard because they work in overcrowded conditions, they work with the public, they work around one another, and they live in overcrowded conditions and they depend on transit when we can shelter in place or use a private car. To add insult to injury, so to speak, um, when you look at where the most remote work jobs, possible remote work jobs are, they're in big cities. So they're in London, Dublin, New York, San Francisco. Yep. When those jobs leave, if we leave, we take our remote job with us to wherever we go, the Irish countryside, the Hudson River Valley outside of New York, a small town. That person who comprised the essential service economy is now out of work. Exactly. So, so as remote work decentralizes, the people who get hit the hardest are the essential workers who are crammed and jammed into so, cities, so, not only because they can't afford housing, because now their source of life, now the, the market for their source of livelihood has shrunk. So this is, this is a, I mean, this is a serious concern because here, you're well aware, all around the English speaking world in particular, the cost of accommodation has really skyrocketed. It's not so much the case in the continental European countries, which are much more, well, rent is capped and you've got all sorts of interventions, but what is the future of the livable city if we don't get rents and accommodation and land prices under control? Yeah, I'm worried. I mean, if you ask me, I, I kind of think the economy will boom 
after the pandemic. What is Goldman Sachs saying? Seven and a half percent growth in the United States post-vaccine, which started slowly, but it's rolling out. You only need to look at Israel to see how many people will get there. So, you know, and, and, and realize that the Spanish flu was followed by the roaring 20s. So I think in our countries, we're going to see the roaring 2020s. The real thing that I think it will happen is if you look back in history at the time there was the greatest class divide in modern memory, it was the 1920s. So I think we're going to see these accentuated class divides by class, by race, by ethnic background, by immigration status. And that will continue to pull us apart. And I think there's two things. One, I think for sure, David, we've got to build more affordable housing. And I think part of that is building more housing for sure. Big yeah, just, just full have- stop. Just build, build, build. But we also have to build affordable housing. I think we have to build, 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 and build with an eye to affordable housing. We have to figure out whether that's social housing or or some kind of public-private partnership, which I think more is the model. We have to focus on building affordable. When I lived in New York City, I lived in a building in Lower Manhattan that 30% of the units were affordable housing. There were rich, I rented. There were rich people who spent $10 million. I, I, I didn't spend that, but in that condominium building, and then there were people who probably paid four or $500 a month for rent. They weren't the indigent poor, but they were like nonprofit workers, teachers, uh, yeah. less perfect. But I think we have to build affordable housing. The second thing that I think we have to do is we have to create better jobs. And I just thought, I think is, is if we look at, you know, my dad always told me this story. He took a job in a factory in Victory Optical in Newark, New Jersey, making eyeglasses when he was 13 to help support his family. It took nine family members, my, my grandpa and grandma, him and his six siblings to make a family wage. And in fact, David, wow. they lived in a shared house in Newark with my dad's father and his two uncles. So it took um, nine people to make a family wage, but it probably took 20, let's say 27 or 30 people to support the house. We're all working, you know? Yeah. He said he came back from his service in World War II, serving along Irish. My dad was, you know, he departed from the UK went on shore in Normandy, stormy beaches at Normandy. Wow, Came back from the war, same job, job in the same factory. He's like, all of a sudden I had a living wage. He didn't say that. He said, I made good money, Rich. He didn't say living wage. I made good money, Rich. Uh, the unions helped do that. FD, he said FDR helped do that with the labor. He didn't call it the Wagner Act, the labor laws in the, in the unions. Uh, they all helped me. And then I could buy a house and have two kids and put you two kids through college. We became middle class. Even though we're working class, my dad said we we're middle class. Now we have about 60% of our workforce, 70% of our workforce doing essential low-end service work and some blue-collar work. We got to do the same thing for them. We decided as a society we'd pay more for eyeglasses or cars or appliances or steel so that that working class could have a better job while life. We could pay more for a freaking burger or to get a package delivered or for our groceries so that the people who are the essential workers on whom we depend have a, have a living wage. And it's less like we pay a few bucks more to get shit delivered we paid a lot more for a car no i hear you so to me it's a no-brainer we just have to affordable housing and better jobs together well that's an interesting point it's a really fascinating point you make richard the basic the, the the idea that the american society chose in the 1950s to pay more for consumer goods that blue collar people made so their wages went up and it was a sort of a virtuous virtual cycle you know right now in the states i know Biden has changed the background noise clearly, and and it, you know we were just saying the other day in the podcast it feels as if we're not even Americans, as if a nastiness has passed, okay, from the United States. But 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 if we 
continue, if the United States continues to be driven by shareholder value and owners squeezing the assets and driving up profits, you're going to see more of this income going to the top 1% and less going down to the 60% that you're talking about. So do you think the whole, the whole US is going to be reframed? Thank God. Biden won. So I'm going to say, thank the Lord. You know, we moved to Canada during the W years, and both my girls are dual. My my girls are dual citizens. We're not. We're permanent residents, and we're eligible for citizenship, and we'll probably get it. We're permanent residents in Canada and citizens of the United States. So, look, I think Biden is the right man for the right time, and you have to say something about the United States. You know, I think Trump was necessary in a way. I, I hate the man with every bone in my body, and always, as a New Yorker, always hated him. Uh, but look, I think he exposed a nasty side of America that Americans needed to see. Uh, and I think, I think people saw it. And then when they stormed the Capitol, you, you know, I, I was crying. You, you, you know, you, you, grown man crying. Probably the last time I did that was 9-11. You saw an ugly side to America, which weren't the foreign terrorists, which were American terrorists. And you saw them ransacking the Capitol building. And so I think America needed to see that. I think Biden's better. But I think you put your finger on a bigger point. And I think it's getting worse. I think this oligarch class, you know, they, they for some, not all of them, there is a group of the business community which are ethical and decent. And, you know, sure. in the United States, not only has the 1%, 0.001% made off with all the money, you know, gotten all the gains from the stock market. I think they're putting in place a race to the bottom, you know. I'm looking in the United States now at these folks saying, you know, I, I, why, why is there so much talk about decline of New York, decline of San Francisco, businesses leaving, people leaving San Francisco, leaving New York? There is a group of real estate developers, real estate investors, financial people, hedge fund managers, and techies who are saying to these towns, we, we want you to stop taxing us. We don't want to pay San Francisco or New York taxes. We don't want these regulations. We don't want to have to build affordable housing. The hell with you. We'll move to Florida or Texas, where the government is telling us to do nothing but set, establish shop here and pay no taxes because we don't have a state income tax. So I think in the United States, what we're seeing now is an accelerated race to the bottom, which is being celebrated, which worries me so much because there's so many people in this country saying, isn't this great? The companies are leaving San Francisco and New York and they're moving. I know, see, we can't, as Europeans, we're listening to this and we're saying that is a race to the bottom, as you've said. That is the opposite of what the wealthy class. I'm going to flip this and let's just talk a little 100%, bit. 100%. We about, agree. About history. You go, to a, you go to a city like Florence, okay, and you look around and you see the mercantile class in Florence in the 15, 14th, 15th century, right? They said, we are going to build a beautiful city. We are going to pay our dues to our city by building magnificent buildings, by building extraordinary architecture, by having this public face of the city, which we regard as beautiful and we regard as something to be proud of. To what extent does, you know, if we're, if we're going to talk about the oligarch class, right, to what extent is it, do they have to kind of mirror? If you look at even a city like Dublin, the Victorian Dublin's put a lot of, a lot of money into this place. The Georgians put a lot of money into this place. All great cities need a civic, responsible business class to thrive. That's my point. Do you and I think we're torn. I think, you know, when I go to towns around the United States, when I go to a Bentonville, Arkansas, you know, it's very interesting to look at what the young members of the Walton family are doing to invest back in their hometown of Bentonville, Arkansas. They're not building an HQ2 
and moving an HQ2 to some other city. They're building the new Walmart headquarters and they're building up Arkansas. When I go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I look what the Kaiser Family Foundation is doing to invest and build the best park, new park in America and focus on remote workers, I think there's two groups. I think there's a group that wants to reinvest and do everything you said. And in a lot of small towns, you know, these are groups that have decided they want to help their families, uh, help their communities. And then there's a group of more rapacious people who are saying, you know, I'm the one, I, I, you know, I'm the new Messiah. Yeah. I have all the technological tools of the trade. I'm the one creating wealth and value. The hell with the, the hell with anyone else. I, I can do this. And, and so I think the United States is torn. I do think, though, the day of reckoning is coming. And by the way, Look it back to the 1920s, robber baron capitalism, the days before FDR, the days before the social compacts in Ireland, in the United Kingdom, across Western Europe. So look, I think there's some struggles that have to happen. People have to rise up and say enough's enough. And I think, you know, one thing that heartens me is this incredible wave of protests that I saw. You know, I lived through the, the protests of the 60s. Those were largely minority and largely student. Yeah. These protests were cross-class, cross-race, cross-age group. What, what went under the banner of Black Lives Matter was a great group of people in the United States around the world saying enough's enough. So I'm hopeful that the arc of history points in the right direction, but I'm also worried. I'm worried about this rapacious group of capitalists and this race to the bottom. So I think the better age of our nature will prevail, but this is a real struggle. Can we just go worldwide now? I mean, one of the extraordinary things about urbanization in the last 30 years is the rise of these mega cities, some places that I'd even never even heard of. Suddenly you turn up and they have, a, they have a population of 10 million, 15 million, 20 million. What is the future of urbanization? I, I read some statistic that in the, in the next 40 years, 60% of people will live in 2% of the world's landmass in the cities. What's your sense of our ability to manage this? We're done. I mean, the advanced countries are near completely urbanized. And urbanization has shifted to Asia and Africa and the developing the global south. In my book, The New Urban Crisis, I devoted a whole chapter to this. Maybe some people say it's not enough. I should write a whole other book on this. But, but, you know, in the past, urbanization tended to lift all boats. If you look at Ireland, England, France, the United States, Germany, Japan, the advanced industrial countries, urbanization, as it occurred, tended to go hand in hand with industrialization. You developed factory complexes. There was local agriculture at the periphery. And not every boat, but many boats rose, and you got the development of a middle class and a rising standard of living. Well, in the global world we live today, you know, you're no longer going to develop in a way where urbanization equals industrialization equals rising boats equals a middle class. Cities are part of a global system. And, you know, food is raised in one part of the world, things are made in another part of the world, and stuff is shipped around. So what we've seen now is a breakpoint. You know, urbanization no longer. Some people call this poor people's urbanization. Other people call this urbanization without growth. We've seen this breaking of a connection between urbanization and boats rising. Partic and look at look at the spread of this virus. It has been just horrific. You know, we don't have yeah. great statistics, but but you look at the spread of the virus in places like India and in the slums of Latin America, where people can't social or physically distant, where medical services are rudimentary. So. Yeah, I think these divides get bigger at the global level. You know, I think, by the way, city building and investing in cities and investing in urbanization is the number one priority of the 21st century. But it's a hard argument to get 
people to take. People still don't understand how important this is. And whether it's climate change, energy, poverty, health, all of those reduce, in my mind, to better models of urbanization. Just before we go, I mean, the one thing about we've seen about COVID, I look at it here in Dublin, but I've got friends in London, I've got friends, you know, huge amounts of cycle lanes being built. A, 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 a significant jolt to the way people think. You've got Anne Hidalgo in her 15-minute city. We've, we've talked about the fact that the, the office will not dominate the centre of the city in the way it did. To what extent has this been the sort of wake-up call that urbanists like yourself have been hoping would stop people thinking about economics on a national level and begin to think about economics on a city level. They're kind of like the Jane Jacobs original idea that cities ferment dissent, good times, good ideas, innovations, and away we go. I, I do think pandemics register themselves. We forget pandemics. So, for example, and I worry about it. I was born in 1957 during the middle of that pandemic. No one mentioned it to me. My parents were both born in the 20s, but they were the youngest. All of my aunts and uncles, like 14 aunts and uncles on each side, all of them were either born or toddlers during the Spanish flu. I never knew, I never knew that. They call the Spanish flu the great forgetting, the great forgotten. So I think we look past these things. We have the roaring 20s or roaring 2020s. I do think they register in the built environment. Like what we've gotten out of past pandemics are better parks, better open space, bigger boulevards better health and sanitation, building codes for light and ventilation. I do think this, the bike lanes will stick. To, there may be some retrenchment. I think they'll stick. I think the outside dining, you know, the fact that, you know, Europe has always had outside dining, but the United States never did. I think that will stick. I think we still have to bring more of the office outside. I think that more of the things we do, even parts of education can be done better outside. We need to get rid of these buildings with windows that don't open. But I think these advances will be for the wealthy. And for those of us with means, the advantage third, we can take advantage of this. But those of us without that will not have access to any of it. So you'll have better neighborhoods, closer to work, better amenities, more cycling, fitter people will be fitter and healthier because we're outside. And that divide based on where we live and our socioeconomic status will grow. So that's what I see. Better, better, Jane Jacobs kind of urbanism for the relatively advantaged and worse for the not so advantage. And that, that sort of, I think, is the big issue from our times. You know, well, the way I phrase this is that we can't, just, we can't just rebuild cities or reset cities. We have to put it intentionally, rebuild with an eye towards inclusivity and resiliency. I mean, if we don't focus on building more inclusive cities, they won't just happen. In fact, they will become more divided. They won't, and they won't become more resilient, they'll become less resilient. Richard Florida, we will leave it on that note, but listen, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Ah, cheers, Great Richard. seeing you. Take care, man, bye. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I love that guy's name. Richard Florida. Richard Florida. He's a hitman. He's a hitman for the Sopranos. Like we've been talking on and off for since the podcast started for fifty years. <laughs> well, we were talking about how house prices are going up, and last week we talked about the weirdness of house prices going up in the middle of a pandemic when you would have thought yeah. they'd been going down. But one thing I, I did come across during the week there was the fact that suburban house prices are certainly going up, but center city apartments are actually going down in value. Yeah. Because the city needs to be reimagined. Because most people are thinking, hold on a second, right? What was interesting about Dublin, whether we're talking about Dublin or Amsterdam or London or Paris, it doesn't matter. What was interesting was, number one, this was the social centre of the yeah. of the country. Yeah. Restaurants, bars, clubs, places to go out, all that sort of stuff. You take all that out and you take out the fact that you don't have to be in the office anymore. Yeah. And suddenly people are saying, a bit like Richard was saying, what's the point of the city? Now, his view was that, hold on a second, cities are incredibly difficult things to destroy and COVID will not destroy them. Yeah. But it'll definitely change them. So the first thing is Dublin apartments were too expensive in the first place. Sure. Right? Yeah. Too, so the price should drop. Dublin rents were too high in the first place. So those rents should drop. And the apartment price can only be a reflection of the income of the apartment, which is the rent. So if rents are falling, and of course, what's going to happen to all the office space? Yeah. Look, what we're talking about prior to COVID is probably the most stupid use of space we can even imagine. We have a house which is empty during the day, but full at night. Yeah. We have an office which is full during the day and empty at night. Why don't you put the two of them together? That's the obvious thing, right? Mm. And COVID has said... This can be done. But the question then is, what do you do with cities? Because you can't just abandon the city, right? And what, again, what Richard Florida was saying there was also quite interesting. He was saying suburbs and small towns and rural towns are going to become much more attractive places to live and to work. Yeah. So what you're seeing in, in, in Ireland is, as you said, prices going up in the suburbs. As people say, I want to live there and I frankly, I don't want to be in the city. Yeah. But then the city itself has got to really quickly, this is the point, deal with the fact that the world has changed. If cities decide that we're going to wait for a while, we're not going to be proactive, and he was talking about being proactive, mm. what's going to happen is that gradually the office spaces will empty out, the living spaces will empty out. If you've no living space, if you no one living in the city and coming into work, why would you have a restaurant there? Yeah. Why would you have a bar in the city? Like the bars in Dublin City and the restaurants in Dublin City survive on three things. Office workers, tourists, 
and local traffic. Yeah. And given that local traffic, i.e. the amount of people who live in the city, is very small, it, by virtue, it's very, very small because there aren't that many apartments, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Tourism's gone and office traffic's gone. So if people really want to worry about Dublin, and there's many Irish people who don't, but there's many who do, We've got to be much more proactive now. But it's and not really ju- quickly proactive. But it's not just Dublin as well. Like it'd be all it's London, it's Paris, it's all yeah, places. But Cork yeah. and Limerick and Galway as well. Yeah, exactly. So so when you talk about a conscious decision, then whose conscious decision is this? Well, you see, this is what has always amazed me. So if you're in Cork or in Galway or in Dublin, who is it? What individual wakes up in the morning? Yeah. When they're brushing their teeth and says, I'm worried about Dublin, I'm worried about Cork. Nobody. There isn't one political person whose total career is dependent on getting the place to work. Yet, you take a city like Dublin, Dublin raises more than half the tax revenue of the whole country. Think about that, right? Yeah, well, that stands to reason. Well, it doesn't. In actual fact, most big cities should not be half as dominant. You know, most, like, if you think in most countries, the major city shouldn't have half the tax revenue. It should be something much, much smaller, right? Okay. But only Dublin and London have that craziness. Take, for example, a city like Berlin. Berlin is the capital of Germany. Yeah. But it contributes nothing tax-wise to Germany because it's much poorer. So you've got a very strange thing. Oh, Berlin okay. is one of the poorest cities in Germany, yet it's the capital. We in Ireland assume that the capital city has to be dramatically dominant. That's not the case. Like Washington in, in the United States yeah. is a small effort. But I mean, what I'm saying is that Dublin needs somebody to grab it by the scruff of the neck and say, I am responsible for that city, or so we is, are responsible. So for Dublin is the main commercial centre of, uh, of, of the country. And outsized in comparison to most other Sure, but, but then, you know, the rest of the country, smaller counties rely on, on that. Oh, yeah. And that's, so, that's, that's, that's always going to be the case. Yeah. But, you know, what I worry about is that already the centre of Dublin is really shabby. Dereliction everywhere, mm. right? Main roads, proper retail streets with derelict buildings in them. Like, what's that all about, yeah. right? Have no real sense of an urban plan, no real sense of people living in the city. Nobody's saying, you know what? Come and live within the canals. So who are you talking about? Whose responsibility so, should this be? Is it not the, the county council's responsibility? So I think there should be three things should happen in Dublin mm. and all Irish cities. And you can say your your city is any conurbation above 100,000. Let's okay. say that's, that's okay. the thing. First, they need a, everyone needs a directly elected mayor with tax revenue raising powers where the book stops with him or her. First, right? Okay. Second thing is a hoarding tax. We've talked about this before. Yeah. But a tax on hoarding land because land needs to be used. It's this this Henry George Absolutely, idea, right? Yeah, yeah. That if you don't penalise people for not using land, land will be idle. And ultimately, then you've got dereliction. And once you get dereliction, it's that broken windows theory. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know... Spirals downwards. Well, yeah, the place beside me is derelict. Therefore, people don't go down the street. Then they don't particularly like the street. Then the next building is derelict. And what you get is you get an epidemic of dereliction. Cork City at the moment is suffering an epidemic of dereliction. Cork is, and Dublin could go that way. Right. And Dublin and Cork are interesting architectural heritage cities, right? 
And then, of course, you'd hoard land, but you also need revenue raising, but not only revenue raising, you need the city to be able to finance big things. So if you decide that Dublin wants, for example, I've always thought that Dublin port should be moved. Sure. I think it's the wrong place at the wrong time. I think the idea of having a port at the end of a river only makes sense if the river is your super highway for traffic, Mm. as was in 1510. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, nothing comes down the fucking Liffey. Think about it, right? Yeah, we've got a port at the end of Liffey. What you could do is just move the port to Drogheda or somewhere where there's actually a deep, yeah. a deep water port. The reason I say Drogheda is because I think in the unified island economy of the future, this Dublin-Belfast conurbation will be so significant that your port should be there. So Belfast yeah. port and Dublin port should Halfway just be... between, yeah, yeah. 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 Makes but sense. lots of people yeah. would say, well, because of Brexit, you should have put it down by Ross Lair because we're going to go around the UK, all that stuff. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Get it out of Dublin, yeah. right? And reclaim a new city where mm. Dublin port was. I mean, we've talked about this before, yeah. but the question is, how do you finance that? So most sensible cities issue municipal bonds. So the state, the city itself, raises money. Okay. It pays money. Okay, so explain a municipal bond compared to a regular bond. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about those three issues. Directly elected mayor, yeah. the hoarding tax, yeah. and the municipal bond, right? Okay. Years and years ago, John, I remember going on a trip to Finland when I was working for a large bank. And I was kind of trying to figure out what the hell am I doing? Who am I talking to? Mm. And who I was talking to were the municipal bond issuers of Finnish cities, right? Okay. So you go to Helsinki and you go and Helsinki raises money itself, right? So Helsinki wants to build, I don't know, an underground and it's cost them a billion euros. They raise the money, right? And I was talking to the people in the council. From Helsinkians. No, no, from the international market or maybe Helsinkians as well. So, John, municipal bonds, right? If we want to think about the 21st century, how do you finance a city like Dublin? Let's say... You want yeah. a metro, or we want to move the port, as I was talking yeah. about. You need to raise your own money. Now, in America, for example, municipal bonds are the way in which most cities finance schools, highways, all that sort of public infrastructure, social housing, etc. Okay. In 2019, American cities raised $250 billion in bonds. So they go to the market and say, the city of Dublin would like to raise bonds. Right. And the market says, okay, well, let's rate the city of Dublin, right? So I'll give you an an idea of how big Dublin is. Right. Dublin raises 22 billion euros of taxes every year, right? Okay. Slovenia, country, former Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Last week, borrowed money at less than 0.7%. Right. Slovenia's tax take, total tax take, is 15 billion euros. So Jeez. Dublin okay. is yeah. bigger. Yeah. So we could raise money for this city at really fractional cost. Mm. And then you think, okay, that is the big amount. So how much do you need to service that loan? So let's say we're, just to make it simple, we're going to raise 100 quid. Yeah. Rates of interest at 1%. We've got to come up with revenue of 1 euro per year to finance 99 euros of capital investment. Right. That's what's happening, right? Yeah. Now, of course, then you get a directly elected mayor. We vote for that mayor. That mayor says, we're going to raise Dublin taxes, maybe VAT on stuff sold in Dublin. Mm. Very quickly, what you have is you have a financial infrastructure 
in the city that can actually go and do things. Sorry, you have different rate of VAT in Dublin, say inside the M50. Yeah. To the rest of, yeah. so it's, what is it, VAT is 21%. Say it's, say it's VAT, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's 22%. So you put 22% in Dublin and... And so lots of people will go shopping in Bray. People say, oh, I'm not going to yeah, pay yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will, but not that many right. because it's a small amount. But because interest rates are so low, you only have to raise a tiny amount of capital right. to pay the stream of income of the bond, which you use the bond to finance the big things. Yeah. When and do I you just, pay back the capital? Well, bit? I mean, Slovenia raised a 70-year bond, so a long, long time away. Right, okay. a long, long time away. You know what I mean. So we just put that to the back yeah, of the. Yeah, but, but that's the way. That's the, the magic of the bond market. Yeah. I've told you about. But I'll give you some figures, sir, John, in terms of what Dublin does. Right, Dublin raises sixty-one percent of all Ireland's VAT. That's seven billion. Mm. All right, fifty-two percent of all Ireland's PAYE, about eight point five billion. Forty-five percent of all self-employed income tax. That's about one point one billion. Sixty-two percent of all corporation tax, about $5 billion, and 43% of all capital gains tax, around $360 million. So what you have is a particularly vibrant economic entity, yeah. right? Now, in terms of the rest of Ireland, Dublin raises, I was saying about that, $22 billion in total. About $15 billion is spent in Dublin. So $7 billion goes to your Leitrims, your yeah. Offleys, yeah. your yeah. Donegals yeah. of this world. But my point is that unless you have somebody who's waking up in the morning worrying about what are we going to do with these office spaces that we now have to reconvert into residential? What are we going to do about Dublin Port? What are we going to do about a metro system? Unless you have somebody who actually takes responsibility, things don't get done. Yeah. And the reason things don't get done, I've got a theory, which is that a directly elected mayor from Dublin would be the most powerful politician in the country. They'd have the biggest budget. And they'd have the biggest mandate. Right, and okay. Dáil Ireland doesn't want that because the way in which Ireland has been structured, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, is what I would call the uh, the Sunday game approach to economics, right? <laughs> okay. Sunday, With Desi Cal. Yeah, Desi Cal, our old mate our from old the mate. same street as us, yeah, yeah. brought up on the same street as us. Exactly. <laughs> Cut from the same Cut cloth. From the same cloth, Exactly. Eamon McCamosh, Misha Dublin. Do you remember Misha Boy out there? My Dublin. Eamon yeah. McCamosh. Desi, how are you doing? Shout out for Desi Cahill. Big up for the Desmond. But my point is, because of the county structure in Ireland and because of the way in which we vote in TDs, so you have TDs from every county shouting about their county, right? Yeah. What happens is the Dublin voice gets drowned out. I think, right? right? Now, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying this is the way this society okay, okay. has evolved. Mm. So you have the county that delivers half the tax tends not to be represented. And counties that deliver much less tend to be overrepresented in, in the door. Okay. And that's the way it works, right? But the problem is, as Richard Florida was saying, Cities are the dynamo of economic growth. They are the metropolis is where everything happens, where the innovation happens, where the sales happens, where the people leave their villages and their places down the country sure. to come to reinvent sure. themselves. If you take the idea that moving house, leaving home is a transformational act for the individual. Yeah. So everybody who says, I was born in some place in Mayo or whatever, says, I want to leave, I want to come to Dublin. Yeah. Right? That is an act of transformation. 
right? In the same way as when you and I left here to go to London, sure. it's like, I don't want to be from here. I want to go somewhere else. So the cities, the metropolis always has that interesting energy, excitement, the ability to change, right? So therefore, in a country like Ireland, we definitely need our cities to be well-financed sure, because they are the dynamo of change, yeah. right? And the people want to live here and the immigrants and people like JM, they want to come and live in this city. So it strikes me that we need to be, one is a directly elected mayor. To go back to Richard Flores' point, mm. we've got to fix the cities. Two, we need municipal bonds. And then three, we need the mayor to be the custodian of the city. And when I say the custodian, to look after the place. And if you have dereliction, if you have this extraordinary increase in land prices, mm. if you have an amazing situation, I've always said that dereliction is a function of wealth, not poverty. Yeah, yeah. We need to go and look at taxing hoarding. And the reason I believe we don't do this is that lots of the landlords who own buildings in the cities, like Dublin, are not from Dublin. You know, you're not living in the city. I think the people who make decisions for the city need to be of the city. Not necessarily 10-generation dubs, right? Yeah. But they need to live in the place and the consequences of their actions. Because when I see how Dublin was planned, and again, Richard Florida was talking about around the car, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Exclusively around the car. So you get a medieval city, which is maybe takes four or 500 years to begin to to develop an identity. In 10 or 15 years, you get people saying, well, we should have a road there and a road there. Yeah, and yeah. you destroy the place. But now what I'm saying is post-COVID, John, this is the important thing. You can't just wait around for these things to happen. I think somebody's got to go and take responsibility for the city, not just Dublin, but Toronto or London or wherever. Because if you just let the free market do it, yeah. you lose something magical. So I think time is now ripe for a mayor with tax-raising powers and financed by municipal bonds to actually go in there and change the landscape. Otherwise, otherwise, the flight that you notice at the top from Dublin City will just continue. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon email in i will answer your question but more importantly it's ad free just you and me and your man across the way hey patreon.com forward slash dave mcwilliams and let's figure out the world together Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. 
With resorts worldwide, from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.